Good evening. I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I'm kind of amazed that I'm here, actually. I never thought I would do something like this, because as you might imagine, mine is a difficult story to tell, and I never really wanted to tell it. But having shared it with a few people, I was told that I had a witness that needed to be shared. So in the end, this was an invitation I could not refuse. I'm the eldest of four children and thought I had pretty much a cookie-cutter childhood. Dad worked and supported the family. Mom stayed home with us kids, babysitting to make extra money. Dinner on the table every night at six. Mom was raised Southern Baptist and Dad's family was Presbyterian, but they never took us to church. Their philosophy was that when we grew up, we could decide for ourselves what we wanted to be. In truth, I think that this is the excuse that many parents make when they just don't know enough about their own faith or how to wrestle with the questions that faith presents. I know that's why my husband and I avoided the subject for so long. Telling ourselves that you don't need religion, all you have to do is believe in God. Well, as they say, even the devil believes in God. So our kids got the idea that God wasn't really all that important because we did not make him a priority in our lives. We cheated our older children by not giving them that anchor, and they still struggle with those questions today. Somehow, though, I still learned to believe in God as a child. We had a family Bible, and even before I could read, I would pore over the pictures. And Mom told me that that man on the cross was Jesus, and that he had died to save us from our sins. I didn't know what sins were or why he had to die for them, but I felt sorry and saddened and even grateful that he would do such a thing to save me. When I was 12, my best friend at the time, Randy, died. I didn't stop believing in God or get angry with him, but 12-year-old little girls don't just die. So I began to struggle with the big questions. Why, God? What had Randy ever done? That's the day that my seemingly idyllic childhood came to an end and the world turned into a very scary place. That same year, my parents began having trouble and divorced, and somehow I was inexplicably caught in the middle of it. One day, my mother left with the other kids and left me. My dad sat me down at the kitchen table and dropped a bombshell. He was not really my father. What happened is that my mother had fallen in love with a handsome and charming airline pilot. The only problem was that he was married. So when they learned that my mother was pregnant with me, they decided that an abortion was the only option. And he called his friend Rod for the money. Let me meet the girl, Rod said. Rod, or Spike as he was later called, met with my mother and explained that he did not believe in abortion but he had another solution. He would marry her and give the child his name. The idea was that they would divorce after I was born, but they ended up staying married for 14 years and had three more children together. But think about that for a moment. This man, upon meeting this perfect stranger, without ever having met me, sacrificed his life so that I might live. Whatever visions or plans he had for his future, disappeared in the moment that he asked a perfect stranger to become his wife so that I would not become a back alley abortion statistic. And not only that, 
but if they had divorced, he would have paid child support for me for the next 18 years. It's his name on my birth certificate. So then I was 14, and being a girl who had just found out that everything she once knew was not true or safe, and whose parents were now divorced, and whose dad had moved out, I began to rebel, I guess. One night I came home past my curfew and had a big fight with my mom. She kicked me out and I went to a friend's house. Two days later, the police showed up with a warrant on me for running away. It was illegal in those days, a statutory offense. And I was handcuffed, placed in a police cruiser, taken to the station, put in the county youth shelter, and then eventually into a girls' group home. So when I became pregnant at 16, the consensus was that I must have an abortion. You see, three other girls in that group home became pregnant that summer, and wishing to avoid scandal and make it all go away, we were all pressured to abort our children. My mother wouldn't support me or let me come home. Strangely enough, I wasn't allowed to see my dad, and the father of the baby was in, the, in California in the Air Force and said I must have an abortion too. I wasn't given any alternatives and I didn't know that there were any. Everyone told me, you're too young, it will ruin your life. It's only a clump of cells. You can have more children later when you're ready. It's a quick and simple procedure and then you can get on with the rest of your life as if it never happened. I was put on house restriction until the date arrived, driven to the hospital, walked through a multitude of corridors, and dropped off by one person, then picked up several hours later by a perfect stranger. It was a silent and tear-stained ride home. I, w I wanted my baby. I wrote him letters, certain that he was a boy, and named him Benjamin. I had prayed for some way, any way, to save my baby. But no one stepped up to be my hero. Years later, when I returned to that hospital to have some dental work done, the person attending the check-in desk let slip that I hadn't been a patient there since giving birth to my twins, and then he cited the date of my abortion. Suddenly, for the first time, I knew that my sin was even greater than I'd ever known, and my grief was multiplied exponentially. I named that baby Sarah. Ten years after the birth of our third child, my husband and I discovered that I was again pregnant. None of our children had actually been planned, but this one came as a shock. Being in my mid-30s at this point, the doctor was compelled to offer us amniocentesis. But Jim, to, to find out if there was anything wrong with the baby, to explore our options. But Jim and I had already discussed this and agreed that we could never abort another baby. So there was no reason for the amnio. The doctor, God bless him, looked relieved. That baby was born perfectly healthy and was followed two years later by a healthy baby brother, also a surprise. We call these two our bonus babies or the second wave, and could not be happier that God knew what we couldn't at the time, that they would add something extra special to our family. 
Since God had seen fit to gift us with not only three, but five children now, I was filled with gratitude towards God for such abundance, which I didn't deserve. With that opening, I can tell you, I did not choose Catholicism. God chose it for me. He commanded me to become Catholic. I had come across a Bible passage early on, one most of you are probably familiar with, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. This scripture confused me, but I couldn't let it go. Lean not to thine own understanding. What was that supposed to mean? Whose understanding was I supposed to lean on if not my own? I wrote this passage on my homeschooling whiteboard, where it remained for a number of years while I read it and reread it and contemplated it. Yeah, I was that resistant. See, I had become a control freak by this time, certain that I had to be in control of my life and the life of my family, and not willing to let anyone ever take the reins again, not even God. Now, have you ever had a cluster of things happen to you, and you start getting the idea that something supernatural is going on here? That there's a message that you're supposed to be getting, and you can't figure out quite what it is? Well, we had bought my mother's house years earlier, and I suddenly started getting the feeling that we were maybe supposed to move. But I didn't want to move. This was the house I had grown up in, been kicked out of, reclaimed as an adult. The house where I had raised my own children. So I ignored the feeling, ignored the message. But God is patient and will not be ignored. So I argued with God. I'm really good at arguing with God. We can't sell the house. The kitchen is old and outdated and needs work that we can't afford right now. As if on cue, we have a fire that destroys the kitchen as well as sustaining heavy smoke damage throughout the rest of the house. So now we're cleaning and painting every room in the house, and the contractors are replacing the cabinets, the counters, and the flooring in the kitchen. But Lord, we can't move. Have you seen that chimney? It's about to fall over, and it's expensive to fix an old brick chimney. And what about that garage roof? It looks like a sway-back mare. Roofs aren't cheap. No, we can't sell the house now. The very next day, after this little conversation with God, my husband's outside when he hears a noise. It's the neighbor's tree splitting in two. He has just enough time to get them and us out of our houses before the tree, a massive old oak, splits and one half falls on, you guessed it, the garage and the chimney. Oh Lord, what's going on here? I mean, we can't move now, we practically have a new house. <laughs> I dig in my heels. No, I don't want to move. This is my home and I'm staying. What could be so important that we have to move anyway? Two weeks later, to the day, a tornado rolls in. And our beautiful mountain ash tree, the one that out front that gracefully drapes over our four-story house, shielding us from the summer heat and sun. 
the one under which every major event in our children's lives has been documented, the one that we've actually come to call the family tree, is uprooted, laid down in such a way that it miraculously missed falling on any of the houses or parked cars. In fact, it was the only damage from that downdraft on our street. Suddenly, everything feels different. The house no longer feels like the warm and comfortable cocoon that it once did. I give up, Lord. We'll do as you wish. I don't understand what's going on or why you want this, but I get that you have your reasons. So we set about getting the house ready to sell, and once it was on the market, I asked God, so what now, Lord? What is it you want us to do now? And clear as a bell, I heard the answer. Go and be Catholic. My sister suggested that maybe God meant Catholic small c, but I knew that he meant capital C Catholic because my whole life seemed to be leading to that moment. But the last thing I wanted to do was join a church, any church, and particularly the Catholic Church with all of its rules and regulations as I saw it then. I mean, you have to go to church every Sunday? What's up with that? But I dipped my toes in the water a little bit, started reading about Catholicism, and we even attended a few Masses. Like a stubborn child, though, I continued to stall. That's when he sent in the evangelizers. Suddenly, they seemed to be everywhere I turned, and they were always so darn happy, you know? It was so irritating. <laughs> I mean, I loved Jesus too, didn't I? And you didn't see me going around saying, God bless you and praise God all the time, right? But then the flood of 2008 came, and we had to clean out and remodel my mother's house down in Czech Village. Many of you probably know just what I'm talking about, when I tell you what a hot and dirty and smelly job that was. So the guy who filled the trunk of his car with ice and bottles of cold, clean drinking water and drove around handing it out was a godsend. And when he asked God's blessing on you as you reached for that magic elixir, you didn't mind at all. You even welcomed it. But I'll never forget the three women, all dressed in the same color t-shirts, so they were probably from the same church, maybe even this one, who asked if they could just pray for me. Yeah, yeah, whatever. But as those women prayed for me, I felt myself melting, my defenses gone, and I wept with relief. And he kept sending me Bible verses and leading me to books and putting practicing Catholics in my path. And then there was that passage from Proverbs still niggling at my brain. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. My mother decided not to return to her house, so we sold the one that we'd moved into and moved into hers while we looked for something more to our liking. Then one day, while I was cleaning the garage, I heard the voice again. It was a clear instruction delivered so potently that I didn't even stop to clean myself up. Stop what you're doing, go inside, and call the church. I knew which church was meant because there was one right up the street that we had found ourselves going back to over and over again whenever we would take in a mass. There were no more excuses. God had moved us into the precise location where he needed us to be. I made that call, 
And in that very moment, my life began to change. I knew, finally, that I had to actually trust in Him, that He knew what He was doing. So I promised God that I would empty myself of all my previously held notions about religion and let Him just fill me back up. I went into the process with that one rule, to come to Him as a little child, to surrender my will, and it has made all the difference. I still had a lot of questions about what Catholicism believed, what it taught, and so I looked them up in the Catechism and searched for commentaries. And what I discovered during this time was that Catholicism was right on everything. God lifted the curtains from my eyes long enough for me to glimpse the astounding beauty of the truths contained in the Catholic faith. I discovered a whole new world and it was more amazing than anything I could have imagined. So in 2010, at the Easter Vigil Mass, my two youngest sons and I were received into the Catholic Church. It remains the best day of our lives, hands down. As my young sons said to me that day with such excitement in their voices, Mom, we're finally going to be real Catholics. <laughs> Excuse me. Now, before I became Catholic, the RCIA director had encouraged us to go to reconciliation, but said that it wasn't necessary in my case, since baptism would wash away all my sins. I was relieved, sort of a get-out-of-confession-free card. But shortly thereafter, our ministry, our, our parish had a ministry fair. While looking at all the opportunities to volunteer, I came to the pro-life table. Something welled up inside of me, and by the time I got home, I could no longer hold back the tears. They just kept coming and coming and coming, and I couldn't stop. Shaking uncontrollably, I finally called my priest and asked if I could see him. We arranged to meet within the hour, and I had my first real confession. Everything just poured out of me, and I threw myself on the mercy of Christ. You see, I had convinced myself that abortion was unforgivable, that a price must be paid for my having committed the most egregious of sins. But Father gently reminded me of the foundational truth of our Christian faith. Kathy, the price has already been paid. Christ died on the cross for your sins. As he walked me to the door, my priest told me that he was counseling a family from the parish whose teenage daughter was pregnant, and he wasn't sure what to say to them. Before I could think, I blurted out, tell them congratulations. He replied that it really wasn't that easy, to which I responded, why not? In that moment, it dawned on me we have to stop talking about unexpected pregnancies in catastrophic terms. The culture is a liar, and everything without exception that is good and true and beautiful belongs to the church, because it belongs to God. We have to quit playing by society's made-up-for-the-moment rules and start asking, what does God say? Because his answers don't change. Being the God of life, the God of creation, the answer is clear and eternal 
How could any first response other than congratulations even be considered? For all of time up to the present contraceptive age, all pregnancies were unplanned and left to the will of God. And we knew this and accepted this and raised families by his grace alone. Shortly after my abortion, a friend of mine had learned that she was pregnant, but her family supported her decision to keep her baby and found social agencies that could help. She transferred to Metro so she could finish her high school education because they had on-site childcare, and she and I moved in together, working different shifts so that I could take care of her daughter while she worked. Eventually, she married and had two more children and is today grandmother to four. And that first baby went on to marry her high school sweetheart, go to college, and become a teacher. In 1985, my sister became pregnant at 20, and I begged her not to have an abortion, vowing to help her in whatever way I could. The father was giving her a rough time, and his father was pressuring her to have an abortion. But knowing that she had the support of her family, she was able to stand up to them both. My sister finished school, obtaining a double bachelor's degree, married, and had two more children. She works in the helping professions and is now grandmother to two. Around that same time, I was introduced to a young woman who was also pregnant with no father in sight. She too was being pressured to have an abortion. She was so strong and so brave though, and she resisted. I gave her baby clothes and a cradle, and out of nowhere, a doctor and his wife, who were strangers to her at the time, took her and the baby in and gave them a home to start their lives together. I eventually lost track of her, but the last I knew, she too was going to college and doing well, and that little boy was the light of her life. Then about four years ago, my eldest son and his girlfriend came over to tell me that they were going to have a baby. The girlfriend was scared to tell me, but my son knew better. I was overjoyed. Today, I watch that sweet little girl, as well as my other two grandchildren, while their parents work, and I couldn't be more blessed. The two of them were married last March. Where is the great tragedy that is supposed to result from carrying out an unexpected pregnancy? Because I can attest that the real tragedy is borne by the women who abort their children. Notice that when a woman is pregnant, oftentimes even before she knows it, she will naturally hold the child in her belly, instinctively compelled to nurture and protect. It isn't natural for a woman to choose to abort her own child. And whether we admit it or not, no amount of self-justification can replace that innate knowledge. It is natural that we might be scared, unsure of ourselves, afraid of what others might say or think, but these are all things that can be overcome without going to the extreme of aborting our child. We're led to believe that abortion solves the problem, but we've been at this long enough now to know the effects that abortion has on women, and I can attest to most of them myself, including debilitating depression, guilt, inability to forgive myself, intense grief, sadness, anger, rage, emotional numbness, lowered self-esteem, alcohol and drug abuse, 
nightmares and sleep disturbances, suicidal urges, difficulty with relationships, panic attacks, anxiety, flashbacks, and fears throughout each of my pregnancies. Was this the child that God would take for me, from me in the payment for the lives I took? And I was not the only one suffering through these things. My husband and children, even my friends, suffered through the fallout alongside me. In fact, for many years, until I came to the church, I was barely able to leave the house if it wasn't absolutely necessary. I missed a lot of my children's activities, and my friends had to come to my house if they wanted to see me. And let's not forget the fathers. Studies now show that men often suffer similar consequences from having been part of an abortion, whether they pressured for it or it was done beyond their will. A man's natural role in life is to defend and protect his family. The loss of a child in this manner makes him feel like less than a man. Sadly, my story is not unique. Thousands of such stories have been collected by pro-life groups throughout the country. People who know my story have tried to comfort me over the years, saying, it's not your fault, you were so young, you had no choice. But it did not make me feel any better. Because by then I knew that if I had just held on, been more courageous, God would have provided. My mother would have let me come home, or someone would have helped me find social agencies that could help. Or the father would have stepped up especially considering the fact that we married a few years later and have had five more children together. The years of pain were not necessary. My abortion was not necessary. It never is. So which outcome is the loving, compassionate response? Sentencing a woman to a lifetime of gut-wrenching self-loathing or lifting her up and helping her to be the best mother she can be, whether that means keeping her baby or gifting another couple with a child that they dearly want. Nearly 60 million children have been aborted in this country alone since Roe v. Wade was passed, all of them acts of violence, no matter what stage the pregnancy is in. That's also 60 million hurting and damaged women, 60 million hurting and damaged men, all walking wounded among us. 120 million individuals, a third of our population, who have been part of the incomprehensible act of abortion. And that doesn't even include the doctors and nurses and receptionists and janitors who work at these facilities, participating in this evil with their very presence, selling their souls daily. And what about all the sisters and brothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, who may or may not even know of the abortion, but who are nonetheless affected by the fallout and deprived of the pre presence of a precious life in their midst, as my family was? Is it any wonder that the world has, is falling apart, that we've fallen so far, so fast as a society? What's wrong with the world today is abortion. Because in accepting it, we are saying that life doesn't really matter. 
It's meaningless, replaceable, and that colors everything else we do. Through accepting the idea of abortion, we've come to think of euthanasia as acceptable, of assisted suicide as acceptable, and some have even theorized that if it's safe to, and legal to kill the unborn, why not other human beings as well? Why not the elderly, the infirm, or babies born with even simple, operable birth defects? We thumb our nose at God and say, I get to decide, I'm in control, what you want doesn't matter. If we already understand the right to life, it's easy to let ourselves get angry, to ask, what's wrong with these women? How can they not see that this is a human being, their own baby, who has a right to be born? Don't kid yourselves, they know. But they've been lied to by the culture, by the abortion giants who play on their fears and tell them it's the only thing to do. You're too young, it will ruin your life. It's only a clump of cells. You can have more children later when you're ready. You can go on with your life as if it never happened. And the newest one that someone told me a few years ago, it's only a baby if you want it. How does Satan kill or steal the souls of millions of people? He lies to them. Through the culture, Satan tells us that we're supposed to look out for number one, take care of ourselves, pamper ourselves, do what we want to do, no matter how it impacts anyone else, do what makes us happy. If we have children, if, they are supposed to fit into our lives, not change our lives, because according to the culture, they're simply appendages, add-ons, a choice that we can make and unmake at will. He's numbed our consciences, quieted that small, still voice that tells us this is wrong. The subject of abortion is shameful, embarrassing, unseemly. So most women who have had abortions don't talk, generally talk about it, especially not in public. But the pro-abortion crowd is talking about it as if it's nothing. They put slogans on t-shirts celebrating abortion. They sell Christmas ornaments celebrating abortion. They even promote abortion with gift certificates and coupons. They encourage women to proudly proclaim their abortion and tell the world how wonderful their lives are because they weren't saddled with a child. But it's all a lie. So those of us who know better have to stand up and speak up. Polls show that the majority of Americans want to severely limit or eliminate abortion, but the abortion industry just keeps going because that's what it's become, a big business. And as a big business, they will protect their income any way they can. The most important thing we can do is put them out of business, deprive them of clientele for one thing, by virtue of our baptism into his church, we forfeit any right to shake our heads and exclaim, what's the world coming to? We as Catholics have been given the gift of knowing through scripture, backed up by 2,000 years of tradition, blessed with a magisterium that has diligently considered God's perspective, 
that abortion is an intrinsic evil, meaning always and everywhere evil, no matter what. We have the utmost responsibility to convey that message to the rest of the world, to step up in sacrificial love and be someone's hero. Love, real love, is sacrificial, self-giving. Christ himself taught us that on the cross. He loves us so much that no sacrifice was too big. And he reminds us of that every single day, in every country of the world, at every Mass. We say that God is love, and rightly so, but it's also just as true that God is life. So if we reject life in any way, we reject love, and we reject God. I am so grateful that God led me to his church. I believed in God before I became a Catholic. I said my prayers and read my Bible and felt close to God before becoming Catholic. But in finally saying yes to God's plan for me, I fell head over heels in love with him. In bringing me home, he knew that I would find context and discipline and teachings I could trust. I've been blessed to see how wrong-headed and twisted my thinking once was because I followed the world. I can no longer reject the teachings of this amazing church than I can reject Christ because they really are inextricably woven together, one and the same. This is what he wanted me to see. In fact, I only had one real stumbling block that I still hold on to for a little while after I came into the church, and that was the real presence, which it turns out is why we have to come to Mass on Sundays. But one day, as my family was getting ready for Mass, I pleaded sick, even though I wasn't sick, and stayed home. Once my family was out the door, I went and laid on the sofa, intending to go back to sleep. But the doorbell rang. I got up to answer it, but no one was there. So I went back to the sofa. I had no sooner gotten comfortable when the doorbell rang again. I trudged back to the door, but once again, no one was there. As I made my way back to the sofa, I happened to look at the clock. It was exactly 10.30, the time that Mass was starting. It was as if God was admonishing me, I'm here, where are you? And that's when it hit me. Yes, he is always with us everywhere we go, but he is most fully here, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. I got myself to Mass that afternoon and haven't missed since, unless I was really and actually sick. My friends and family will tell you I've changed in so many ways since coming home to the church. I no longer feel the need to control everything. He's in charge, and he's so much better at it than I ever was. I no longer hide out in my house, afraid to mix in the world, because I belong to him, and I'm his wherever I go. I mean, how is it even possible that I'm standing up here talking to you about some of the most personal parts of my life? Because in him, we're all friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. Depression, gone. Anxiety, gone. What do I have to feel depressed or anxious about? 
I will never get over my abortion. I will always miss my babies. But I now finally have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. I was born anew by baptism, strengthened by the sacrament of confirmation, and receive in the Eucharist the food of eternal life. I've learned that the graces received by having made a good confession far exceed the shame or embarrassment. My husband and I had our marriage blessed in the church, and these last six years have been the best of our 36 years together. In fact, my husband, a fallen away cradle Catholic, when we first married, will be the first to tell you that coming back to the church and her teachings, putting Christ at the center of our marriage, where he always should have been, is the most important thing that we have done for our family, even for those who have not yet joined us here. If you've been involved in an abortion, whether it was having one yourself, helping someone else to get one, or just not stepping up to prevent one, and you haven't confessed your pain already, know that Jesus is waiting to help you begin the healing process. I know. I confessed my sins to God many times before coming into the church. I begged his forgiveness on my knees, sobbing, prostrated on the floor. But it wasn't until I came to the sacrament of reconciliation that the stone was lifted from my heart and I finally began to really heal. I agreed to give my witness tonight, expose my sin in this very public way, because we have to counter the message that the world has been all too successful at spreading. No woman is punished by a baby. Children are never burdens. The act of abortion carries with it terrible, life-altering consequences. And the answer to all of our pain is the mercy and healing power of Jesus Christ. I want to thank CEO for providing this forum. The work they do encouraging us to tell our stories is invaluable, giving us an opportunity to learn from each other and take those messages out into the world. Thank you for taking the time to come and hear mine. I also want to thank Father Chris and my family, especially my husband Jim, for all of their support leading up to this talk. I'd just like to close by saying, I am the prodigal daughter who squandered my inheritance for far too long and was convinced that my sins could not be forgiven. But as we heard in the gospel this past Sunday, while he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, quickly bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Thank you, and God bless and praise God.